Hello everybody, welcome to Fire Science Show, session 23, another week, another great interview. As you may remember, in session 20, we've hosted Professor Brian Mitchum, and we've talked about a lot of concepts related to performance-based engineering in fire safety engineering. And in one of the questions, Brian said that maybe in FSE we should move towards other methods of calculating risks, like something he called maximum tolerable uh, loss. And quite funny, because not knowing that, one or two weeks earlier, I've booked my today's guests, and they're going to cover exactly that, a method to calculate this maximum loss. They've coined it as the maximum allowable damage, but the concept is very similar. What is the inherent risk related to the fire and what damage the fire can cause? The method is really intriguing, because I've learned that it's not just about a value or threshold or a limit or a goal in where that damage can be. It's about A, finding what is the baseline inherent risk related to your building and then starting from that with your engineering. And B, not focusing on the value but on the process itself and trying to learn your building while doing the risk analysis. It's really fascinating to look from this perspective, and I, I think it could actually work. So yeah, th this may be quite, quite useful. So for this episode, for this topic, I have two guests. First is University of Queensland alumni, Dr. Jaime Cadena Gomez, who has finished his PhD on this very subject, Maximum Global Damage Risk Analysis Methodology. And I also have his supervisor, Dr. David Lange, also from University of Queensland, who is also a great fire scientist, very fit to talk about risk, because in, in his scientific career, he also has touched the risk concepts in structural fire engineering. So a great topic, great guests. Uh, let's not prolong this. Without further ado, let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, welcome to Fire Science Show. Today I'm with two great guests. First, I have a University of Queensland alumni and now network fire engineer in Transurban, Mr. Jaime, or sorry, Dr. Jaime Cadena Gomez. Hello, Jaime. Good to see you here. Hey, Washington. Yeah, nice to hear you. <laughs> Great to have you here. And yeah, I and I have UQ professor David Lange. Hi, David. Great to hear you. Great to see you. Hi, Washington. Great to see you. Great to be here. I'll just correct you very quickly. I'm I'm only doctor. I'm a senior lecturer here, not a full professor. Sadly, before the podcast goes live, it's <laughs> I'm joking. Welcome. I'll work on it. Yeah. Let's work on this. <laughs> great, yeah. great to have you, David. How is it living uh, downstairs in, in the other part of the world? It's okay. It's a little bit hot sometimes. I'm Scottish and I'm used to much colder climate than I get here. Okay. We're used to the weather after three and a half years. I, I guess these are the things that you, you can get used to. Mm -hmm. So today we got together here to discuss some risk concepts and risk as a tool for fire safety engineers. A tool that is already being used in some cases, sometimes used wrongly, sometimes used well, 
But as many things in fire, it comes in flavors. And there's so many ways to, to approach that. I've touched it with Brian uh, Mitchum when we discussed performance-based engineering. And these uh, risk concepts are so inherently connected to the performance-based engineering. At some point, it seems to be the, the same thing. So, Jaime, first uh, question to you. Because you pursued your PhD in this topic, I wondered, how did it start? How, how did the things align for you to, to seek a PhD in risk assessment and where, where did you identify the gaps in the current methodology that made you pursue this subject? Yeah, thanks for the question. It's very interesting because I guess I started exploring the concept of risk way before I even realized I was doing that. Back when I was, <laughs> back when I was in university, finishing my bachelor degree in chemical engineering, I started getting involved in fire simulations. And the focus of that was process safety. So... It all started with a small laboratory of chemical engineering. There had been a few small flash fires in there. And my supervisor at the time, my, who is my mentor, and it's someone I'm, I'm, I've learned so much from, he suggested, do you want to research this as your, as your graduation project? And I thought it was very interesting. And I did it from a purely chemical process safety perspective. So we had a few scenarios that were very well characterized because it was a process. We analyzed the consequences, not the likelihoods, because we knew it could happen anytime and it had already almost happened a few times. So we didn't care about the likelihood. And I will return to that at some point. But we really cared about how bad things could get because there were several million dollars equipment in that room. And that was the first contact I had. But then once I went into my professional uh, career and I started working, I kept doing research. And for, I don't know, some reasons, I'm not exactly sure. I, I was still attracted to fire because I understood that fire was different. In that first exercise, I saw that fire safety engineering was actually a thing. That's something that most chemical engineers don't know and most process safety engineers don't know. So I started connecting dots and throughout my master's research, I started getting involved with Professor Jose Torero when he was back in the University of Edinburgh. And we started collaborating. I started using FDS simulations, but from the uncertainty analysis point of view, and I was still flirting with the idea of risk but I wasn't consciously doing it. It was kind of in the background. When I finished my master's and I started working in consultancy and things became less academic, I started realizing that a lot of the things that I saw in from fire, from where I was, was standing, and the things that I saw in chemical process safety, they all had something in common and I couldn't really put my finger on it. But at the end of it, and as you introduced very well, it's risk, and it's a common element just because risk is all around us, and it's a concept that should be very organic to all the human beings, right? We all kind of understand if you say that's risky, everyone kind of understands what you're saying, even though the definition is completely vague, nobody can agree on the definition, but we all know what we're talking about, and we all do some sort of risk analysis in our heads all the time. So I was very curious about it. And just to finish, uh, at some point I realized, look, I, I really want to do more research and fire safety with process safety. That, that there's something there about risk assessments. 
this whole approach of quantifying risk, there's something that doesn't sit right with me. And I approached Jose initially with that, and we discussed that. And he said, actually, that's something that I'm concerned about as well. Let's do a research. And eventually I ended up working with David, who became my main supervisor. And that's how I ended up doing my PhD in fire risk assessments. <laughs> that's good. So, so you became fire safety engineer by almost burning down your lab. That's interesting way to... <laughs> to yeah, well, I wasn't the one who almost burned it down, but then I, <laughs> I was the one who tried to figure out how bad it would be if it did burn down. That's, it was real bad, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great pathway. And actually, uh, in the classic theory of science, Kuhn style, it's very difficult for someone from inside of a discipline to change the discipline at all. So for fire safety engineers touching risk, it's like inherently connected to them and they learned that classical way. You have to come from outside, from a different discipline. And you came from chemical uh, engineering with the process safety in your mind and applied that to fire. So that's the proper combination, how to change the approach. And D David, what's in the risk for you? And what were your thoughts when Jaime approached you with this subject, Jose? Well, it's kind of, it's interesting. And I think Jaime did touch on that, that he initially did approach Jose and then he didn't really give a little bit more, give a lot of detail about the process uh, whereby I became his principal advisor. But actually, Jaime had a, a several principal advisors over the course of his PhD. Mm. So from starting off applying for the program here at UQ with Jose, while Jose was still the head of School of Civil Engineering here, mm. when Jaime arrived, it was shortly after Jose had left, and Jaime started off working with one of our colleagues who left just about a year after I think Jaime started, Dr. Andres Osorio, who's a graduate of UC Berkeley's program. And I started not long before Andres left and took over principal supervision of, of Jaime because it was most aligned with my own interests. My interests in risk, they stem from my PhD, which was the risk and performance-based design of steel and composite structures for fire, working with okay. Professor Usmani at the University of Edinburgh and also with Jose Torero. Once I left Edinburgh, I spent six and a half years at SP, as it was in the time, or RISE, as it is now in Sweden, working on European projects related to large-scale crisis management or critical infrastructure resilience as well. I've also done quite a lot of work in collaboration with Ruben van Coyle at Ghent and with uh, Danny Hopkin as well of OFR uh, mm. on risk. So really learned a huge amount from both of them. That's uh, such a nice combination of chemical um, engineering perspective, structural engineer perspective, let's say infrastructure safety perspective. Each, each of these disciplines would have a completely different understanding of what is the acceptable risk. Like if you want to use risk as a concept in designing safety, you need to have a target. It's not possible to design for zero risk. There's always a meteor yeah. that can hit the planet and yeah. <laughs> your whole risk concept is down. So in many aspects, this pursuit of finding risk or using risk as a concept in design would go down to finding what that tolerable level is or where is the boundary for which you design, right? And I know some some ways to do that. Sometimes it's a fixed value of risk. Sometimes it's FN curve. It's probably, sometimes it's in terms of money. Sometimes it's in terms of some gains or some unbiased method of, of calculating what the gain would be if you do a decision. And in your PhD, Jaime, you've introduced the concept of maximum allowable damage, or you've applied that concept. And that, yeah. that's really interesting. Again, I'm going back to the interview with Brian, because uh, that, that's, yeah. that, that was like really powerful for me, that lesson I got from him. And Brian told that if we want to incorporate 
like risk or PBD, performance-based engineering design in, in, in general, we, we need to apply some better concepts in finding the targets. And he mentioned like maximum tolerable damage or something like that. Yeah, uh, I guess uh, yeah. it's like a very similar. Well, I was actually very surprised too because I listened to the podcast and uh, I was actually quite surprised to hear him say that. And I completely agree. Yeah, that's the basis of my PhD. And just to summarize it, there's so much uncertainty involved in designing a building for, for fire safety. And you don't know who is going to be there doing what kind of fuel load, what the distribution is. And you can make a lot of guesses. They can be even educated guesses. And you have a lot of even databases that you can use. But you don't know. You don't know. I, and, and I would like to have a conversation with an engineer who thinks they, they know because we don't know. And even in my current role at Transurban, dealing with tunnels, all of this very complex infrastructure is designed within a very specific boundaries. And for fire safety, it's the same. As you said, there are some targets that we define, but most often than not, uh, those targets are not really targets, but boundaries of where the system should be operating. And we design for those boundaries. So if you have a warehouse you will pretty much know how much fuel load and how it will be distributed. And that's the limit. Most likely you won't be able to have more than that of a particular type of fuel load because your structure and your protection systems will be designed for those for that particular distribution of load. So it's kind of that idea of the boundaries, of the design boundaries that led me to that concept of maximum allowable damage. Which, as you said, I didn't come up with that. It's just something that we articulated because that has been used extensively, particularly in the insurance sector. And the way they use it is different, but it's the same concept. So when they are going to insure a building or a piece of infrastructure, they want to know, well, if you do have a massive fire and a bunch of things fail, and by a bunch of things, everything fails, what is the loss? Because we're going to have to pay for it. So... Will we actually be able to pay for it? And they do it from a more economic point of view, right? Because, yeah, they're going to pay for it. It's infrastructure, it's property protection. But the concept is underlying is the same. So what I wanted to explore with my research was, well, what if you use that concept not for money, not for an insurance uh, payout? What if you use it to actually identify the boundaries of your design and be very clear about what your building or your infrastructure can achieve in terms of whatever it is that you're doing, protecting life or protecting property, protecting the environment, protecting the firefighters, protecting the community surrounding that infrastructure, whatever it is you want to do. You can very well define this is how much I am willing to lose in any of those objectives. And you can then design backwards from that. And I guess that was where I found my first clash with all the other methodologies, which, as you said before we started, there are so many of them. And uh, my intention wasn't to come up with the one that actually worked because that doesn't really make sense. I don't think that's the case. You need to select them and customize them on a case-by-case -case basis. But what, what I did want was to provide a, an alternative that fits better with this framework of performance-based design because it cannot be just reaching a target. 
a target can be very deceiving. You don't even know if that target is really what you should be striving for. While if you define the boundaries of the performance of your system, then that you do know. You will be able to make a safety case on that. You will be able to say, look, based on these conditions, the performance will be acceptable. The performance will be as intended. If you go out of those boundaries, I, I cannot tell you what's going to happen. I'm, I'm very sorry. And most likely the system will operate at some point outside of those boundaries. But that's a whole different problem. You will need to control it somehow. But as long as you remain within those boundaries, happy days, things will work. And I guess that was for me the main takeaway of, of the research I did is not necessarily hitting a target because that that might not really ensure anything. It's more about saying we're going to have variability. We're going to have some boundaries. How do we stay within those boundaries and where those boundaries lay? So if I understood correctly, this is more oriented on figuring the outcomes of, of the fire events and quantify how bad that can be. And then based on your decision, how bad you would like to, to allow the fire to be, then design around that, not yes. just calculate the risk value in whatever form it is to say, okay, it's below my risk limit, so it's good. If it's much below, I can cut some stuff. If it's a little above, I can add some stuff. So yep. you, it's more focused on this like critical path to the worst case scenario, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. So if you think of a compartment inside a building and you have a fire and that fire is going to start producing both heat and smoke, then you need to figure out, well, what are the consequences of that smoke being mm -hmm. produced in that compartment? All right, maybe that will be acceptable. Maybe it's a storage room. There won't be anyone. You will just lose property. All right, fair enough. But let's say that the heat is enough so that you actually lose structural integrity of the door and now that smoke is moving into the rest of the building. How far are you willing to accept that smoke to travel and to accumulate before it causes trouble to the occupants? And I, I guess these are very basic concepts of fire safety engineering. This is nothing new. But the difference with maximum allowable damage is that we really push those boundaries of how bad things can get to understand what the building can actually do in terms of performance. So to give you an example, my first case study in the PhD was a multi-occupancy building mm -hmm. and we had a fire anywhere in the building. And what we did is, well, the fire doors are not going to be available. They're going to be open because we know that can happen. Nobody can ensure that those doors will work for sure. And of course, if they are there and they work, great, that's amazing, and they should be there. But we need to understand if they do fail for whatever reason, if that happens, will the building be able to perform as good as we wanted to in terms of, in that case, was life safety? And we found out that it is feasible to design the building to achieve that performance objective. So it's just a matter of how you frame that and how you use the, that concept of risk to, to get there. And if you identify that actually you cannot achieve it, then you can start modifying the design or imposing operational rules. You can start saying, well, building is not going to be available for these many people. It's only going to be restricted to this amount of people or for this fuel load. Whether you can actually control that or not, 
that's a different problem. But you as a fire safety engineer will be able to draw those lines and say, look, this is what I can design for. If you can manage that in the real operation, then you can go ahead. If you cannot, then you need to redesign it because this, this is not working. And that was kind of the main idea. Let yeah. me stop you for a second. I'll just uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. quickly explain because we have a varied uh, audience in the podcast from combustion engineers to evacuation people. So <laughs> with the basic concept of risk, what Hyman means is that we usually resort to quantify the general probability of a certain size of a fire to happen in terms of how often per year it would happen. Then you would calculate how much people it will kill through some methods like CFD. Sometimes you just tabularized. Sometimes you use zone modeling for that. Sometimes you run a Monte Carlo for that. But you generally have to combine the probability and the consequences. And once you get that, uh, for a fire that happens once in a year, no one dies. For a fire that's probable in like one in a hundred years, 10 people dies. You are, end up with some value of risk when you multiply them together. And when you have that number, it's a matter of local acceptance, what kind of, let's say, risk value is acceptable. And you pretty much stop there. You reach that number. That's the end of the risk assessment. Of course, I, I think you can still go like somewhere where you went with your methodology that you could seek reducing that risk. You could see alternative pathways. And I've seen that uh, in, in many places that this is used. But in principle, in engineering, you just seek that value and that, that's it. David, David wants to come and go on. Yeah. I just wanted to say that with focusing on the consequences the way that Jaime does, it's almost looking at the inherent risk in a building. So it's almost taking a concept from another from other engineering disciplines to understand okay. what is the inherent risk? What is the, when you strip out all of the controls, all, the, all of the fire safety features in a building, there are controls that help to reduce the risk. They help to manage the, both the consequences and the likelihood of the occurrence of a significant scenario, a scenario that challenges the fire safety strategy in the building. If you okay. strip all of those out, then what you're left with is the inherent risk that's inside of the building once everything else has failed. And that's that's really the yeah. concept that, that Jaime's calculated, tending towards, I think, probably the best way to put it. Once you've calculated the inherent risk, then you can start to put back in the controls to optimize the fire safety strategy to get below sometime, some kind of a target FN curve, if, you, if that's what you're doing. But I wanted also to comment on the idea of target curves as well. The idea of having a target risk that we need to design below, is it's maybe a little bit counterintuitive in some respects. Our, what is a tolerable risk will not be the same from one stakeholder to another. Okay, so mm -hmm. there's a significant dialogue that needs to be had with all relevant stakeholders, with members of the public, with policymakers, with fire and rescue authorities, with the owners of the building, with the insurers of the building. It's a very significant dialogue. And if we set a target level of risk before we even go and do any kind of engineering analysis, then mm. what we end up doing is we focus on demonstrating compliance as opposed to demonstrating the performance of the building or understanding the performance of a building. And that process of demonstrating compliance leads you down a potentially very dangerous pathway, especially when mm. we're dealing with the very low, apparently very low probabilities that we often talk about in fire safety engineering, where you can tweak one number one way or another way, make a slightly different assumption, which on the face of it seems reasonable, but all you're really doing is demonstrating compliance, demonstrating compliance of a design as opposed to really understanding the performance. The point that I'm trying to get at is that if you go down the route of trying to understand the performance as opposed to demonstrate compliance, then you can have a conversation with all of the stakeholders about that performance and understand, is this a risk that you are willing to tolerate as a stakeholder? Yeah, and on, on the back of that, if you do an analysis where you understand that inherent risk 
and you're happy with that risk. You're willing to accept that you have a conversation where different stakeholders say, yes, even when all these different things fail, we're willing to accept that risk. That's a very different scenario than the one that David was describing, when you just somehow achieve a number that combines these two concepts of likelihood and consequence. You somehow end up with this number, which is fatalities per year. And because you achieve this number, then you are in a situation where you pass, where you are, between quotes, safe. And the reality is not that. No building in the world will stop burning because you got a number right on your calculation. That's not going to stop any building from catching fire. That's not going to stop things from going wrong. That's not going to stop scenarios from happening just because you didn't think of them. And at the basis of both approaches, both what I came up with in the PhD and in a more traditional risk assessment, you have the same problem and it's coming up with the scenarios. And that's why in my methodology, we were pushing for the most challenging scenarios possible because at least that gives you a sort of boundary for that inherent risk. But when you do a more traditional approach, you rely on your expertise and your previous experience to come up with the scenarios. And how many are enough? Are you actually capturing all of them? What if this is the first piece of infrastructure that is built of this type? Nobody will have any reference for the scenarios. So assuming that you will be able to capture all the scenarios that you need to actually demonstrate an acceptable risk, it's in itself basically inviable. You won't ever have enough time, people, and money to explore all those different scenarios, to run the calculations for all those different scenarios. So you have to handpick them. And this is at the very bottom or the very core of any risk assessment. You have to pick the scenarios that you're going to be designing for, that you're going to be exploring further. And it's a very qualitative, very subjective-driven process. And so far, we haven't come up in, with any other way of identifying the scenarios. It relies on us as professionals to determine them. So when you open the door to a target, achieving a target, you need to start questioning, well, which scenarios did you pick to get this number that you got at the end? Are these the scenarios that actually matter or not? Maybe in those scenarios, you're just assuming that all the systems will be working as you intended, all the protections, everything. The people will be behaving, and this is something that Brian mentioned, people don't behave as we expect them to do. There's a lot of things that won't happen in the way we design for. So when you design for that and your justification for it being acceptable is that it's very unlikely, for example, that the likelihood is extremely low. Yeah, this can be really bad. This might be able actually to kill a lot of people or collapse the building. But the likelihood is so low. You need to question what is the basis for that likelihood. And if you look at the work of Ruben that you mentioned before, that's a very strong basis. That's a very, very strong basis because you're analyzing the structural system. And I'm by no means I have any knowledge of structural engineer, but I can see how that is a structure. Those scenarios are a structure. 
from the basis, from the fundamentals of structural engineering. When you look at what you potentially do in, in a probabilistic or quantitative risk assessment in a building, the way that you structure those scenarios is very loose. It's very hard to figure out exactly who is going to come up with the scenarios and how you're going to check that those scenarios are actually good, which is what they call design fires. And there's no answer for that one. So, yeah, going back to my that methodology we developed with David and Jose, that is something that you can hold on to because you will know that's a designed boundary. You will be able to be held accountable to that boundary. While with the likelihoods, you rely on a lot of databases and a lot of information that most often than not is, is simply not available. Okay, but when you are seeking that maximum allowable damage, if you're seeking this inherent risk of the building, you still yeah. have to do some assumptions of how the fire can go in that building to find that inherent uh, value, right? So to what extent it is like scenario sensitive? Yeah, so that's actually a great question uh, because that was a part, as I said, that was a, at the core of the risk assessment. And during the process of the PhD, we were always questioning ourselves, how are we actually going to deal with this? Because we can come up with any sort of approach to quantify the consequences and to justify why we're not taking into account the fire doors, for example, which mm-hmm. most people would say that's crazy. Okay, we can justify it. But what about the assumptions underlying the scenarios that we did choose. And we got some inspiration from someone who actually, Brian also mentioned him, Henrik Bjelland in Norway and Dergi Aven. They, they are from the University of Stavanger. And particularly Professor Aven, he developed a, a concept. Basically what he said is in a risk assessment, you make all these assumptions, including the scenarios. So you need to have some sort of additional tool to control how good those assumptions are. And because of the definition that he uses quite often of risk includes not only likelihood and consequences, but also the strength of knowledge, basically how much knowledge you have underpinning the whole assessment. That's where he got an additional tool, which is the strength of knowledge. So basically, in my methodology, in maximum allowable damage, what you create while you're doing the risk assessment is that you create a library of assumptions and inputs and parameters, and you start judging how good your knowledge is about each one of these, which is, I admit, quite a, what would you say, that very intensive work to do, because basically you need to check yourself all the time. So when you come up with something with a calculation, you need to check hey, wait, which parameters are involved here? Are these conservative or are these very optimistic? Is there an alternative parameter here that I should be taking into account? And you create this library and you judge each one of them. And by judging how good your knowledge is for each one of them, and another thing is how each one of them can affect the end result. So basically the sensitivity, which is what you were asking about, Then at the end, you have a library of inputs and parameters and assumptions, and you will be able to prioritize them and figure out there is a set of inputs and assumptions that can change my result dramatically. And I don't know too much about them. So this set of 
inputs and assumptions, I need to do something about it. And that's when the engineering comes in. Yeah, so you mean scenarios that would be like, they would show high sensitivity and at the same time, let's say low strength of knowledge or moderate strength of knowledge. These are the ones that are interesting for you the most, right? Yeah, yeah, correct. So at the end you might, and this is also another thing, it's not a uh, path A to B. Mm-hmm. It's rather an iteration process. So you start with a scenario, you come up with how that scenario, you can actually model that scenario. And of course, we focus on consequences, but there can be also probabilistic inputs in there. And when you do that library of inputs, parameters, and assumptions, and you judge how much you know about them and how much they can affect the result, then you might need to say, okay, I need to go back and I actually need to come up with additional scenarios or additional simulations or additional calculations to see whether I am missing something. And that touches on another important point, which is the peer review. So this library that you come up with is a very important tool for you to hand over to the peer reviewer and say, look, these are all my assumptions. These are all the things that are the basis for my my risk assessment. And you can challenge this if you want. And if you find something that is not right, that's fine, because that means that we will improve our understanding of risk. So it's not kind of like this pass or fail approach. It's more an approach of actually building up those boundaries. And I go back to that idea of boundaries. But as David said, it's about understanding the inherent risk that you're designing for. David, in a large part, it sounds very similar to some structural concepts where you're seeking, like in Eurocode 7, when the building will fail after uh, aggressive collapses, where you find the worst uh, case. And then you also seek this worst scenario. So what are happening? Can you draw some parallels here to the existing methods that people could take from like civil engineering? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Which I can, I guess you're talking about things like uh, robustness of a structure or yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, disproportionate collapse in response to distribution of, of loads and yeah. everything. I, I think it's fair to draw parallels to some extent between those concepts and what Jaime is talking about. What he's actually done with the methodology is once you strip out all of the active controls, which is mm-hmm. what he's doing, once you strip out all of the active controls, if your design is going to be able, if you're, if what's left of the fire safety strategy, the compartmentation, the mm-hmm. egress strategy, and so on, if that is able to support a level of performance or provide a level of performance that is acceptable to all of the stakeholders, essentially what you have is a very, very robust design. And what I said before about everything else just becomes optimization. Then what you do mm-hmm. is you start to reintroduce the controls. You start to reintroduce, for example, sprinklers, automatic closures mm-hmm. on the doors. All those things provide an optimization, they reduce the level of risk, the residual risk in the building. Once you start to think about the, the, the risk in the building, a fire safety risk in terms of inherent risk and residual risk. And what you're going to end up with, ideally, once you go through that optimization process as well, is that the damage to a building is dis- not disproportionate. And that could form, not disproportionate to the initiating event. That could easily form a part of that optimization strategy. So you, it's, you're totally right to draw a parallel there. One of the things that I think is important here is that you did not touch on this when you introduced Jaime as well, is that Jaime's come from a different discipline, which has got a very mature application mm-hmm. of risk assessments into fire safety engineering, where I think that so there's definitely some work that could be done to improve the way that we're applying risk assessments in fire safety engineering. You mentioned a scenario where this inherent risk is, let's say, acceptable, and then you can work. But what if you find out that 
it's absolutely unacceptable. If there is no safety measures, everyone dies in the building or something terrible happens. What, what that? So, uh, what we're not necessarily talking about is acceptable or unacceptable. It's, so one of the important things about risk assessments in other industries is the process itself. Okay, mm-hmm. so the process, going through the process of conducting the risk assessment, understanding what are the inputs to the performance of the building, understanding the inputs what, that, that give you the scenarios that you're going to design the building for, those will inform the decisions that you ultimately take as to what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. This is partly related to what I was talking about before in terms of one risk, whether it was not a level of risk which is acceptable to all stakeholders. Okay, The, mm-hmm. the process here is really just to inform part of a tool to inform the decision-making process as to whether or not a design is acceptable to all of the stakeholders. So if you take, for example, in the UK, and I'm not going to be able to speak to this with a great deal of authority at the moment, but if you take, for example, in the UK, where the HSE is set up, setting themselves up as an authority, essentially, for as part of the risk assessment process for high-rise residential buildings, what you've got is a risk assessment process where they're being for- informed by inherent risk in these HRRPs uh, as to the, le- the level of performance. And they're using that to make a decision as to whether or not additional controls need to be put in. So in the end, uh, just doing the process already uh, highlights the, let's say, risks or the, the possible outcomes. The blind spots in the design. Okay, yes. and you focus more on like really unraveling these blind spots and yeah. uh, seeking the solutions for this rather than yeah. just passing a threshold and, uh, you know, being safe. Yeah. And be, be, before we started recording, you were mentioning something like that. If you do a risk assessment really well, you will be able to find a variable, for example, having a deluge system or not having a deluge system, and whether that actually makes a major difference in those boundaries that you're designing for. Those are the things that we should be looking for. We shouldn't be looking at justifying designs. We should be looking at understanding what the design requires to perform to a particular degree. So yeah, that those blind spots or those very essential variables that can actually have an impact on the performance, those are the things that we really need to look into. And one of my fears, and David mentioned this before, is when you introduce likelihoods in a very mechanistic way and you start combining consequences, which in fire safety engineering are very hard because modeling fire is not easy. And you had a whole podcast with Wolfram about this. And it's very clear that modeling consequences is very hard. And still, that's something that you would say that's one of the things that we do really well in fire safety engineering. Now, if you introduce modeling likelihoods and coming up with scenarios, because you don't need to come up with one or five or 10, potentially you're talking about if you really want to do this the way they have done it in other industries, you're talking about hundreds of scenarios that include all sorts of different combinations of those controls working and the conditions under which a scenario takes place. So if you really want to go down that path, the requirements that you will have for the professionals involved are completely different. You're not only talking about modeling a fire, you're talking about constructing a whole basis of knowledge of both likelihood and consequences. And One key thing that I remember Jose telling me halfway through the PhD is you have to remember that fire scenarios are not an input. Fire scenarios are an output. You start with an idea of where you might have a fire 
and you start exploring what that could lead to and you end up with the fire scenario. But you might have to do some calculations and a lot of brain work to actually figure out what the scenario is going to be. So that's a major difference between uh, a fire, say, in a chemical plant and a fire in a building. The scenarios are not evident. So you cannot just say, oh, design fires and check that step is covered. No, they actually require iteration and uh, checking those blind spots. So all of those things kind of led us towards that idea of maximum allowable damage instead of just just another way of hitting a target. This is very powerful what you've said, and uh, I think Jose nailed it with this sentence. And in, in some of Brian's work, I have, it was also said that the scenarios are inherently connected to the course of the fire in the building, to the building itself. You cannot just take a scenario outside of a building and put it into that building because that's very artificial. However, this is where it starts to be complicated in the real world. You know, if you are an engineer and you want to craft a building, this is where the work starts getting tough. Because if you have a set of the design scenarios for which you design, it, it, it makes your work more organized, simpler. Like, you know that you've done all 15 scenarios, you're good. And this is how it's implemented in New Zealand CMFO2 method. That's how it is. I've mentioned in the green room, Turismo risk assessment method for tunnels. And it's like that there as well. You have um, 18 scenarios for different fires and chemical releases for which you design and they more or less cover this whole spectrum. You know, it's a problem between having a methodology that's ultimately great and methodology that's easy to use for majority of engineers. I guess the solution is somewhere in between because fair enough, we cannot come up with all the scenarios. And, and I think I said it myself, that's an impossible problem to solve, at mm -hmm. least now. Maybe, I don't know, in five years or 10 years with the way artificial intelligence is going. I hope not, <laughs> but it would be very scary to leave uh, a machine uh, to figure out which fire scenario we're going to have to analyze. But fair enough, that's an unsolvable problem. You need to come up with a basis of uh, as an, in, an initial set of scenarios that you're going to design for. But that's basically the same thing I started at, at the beginning of the podcast, which is fine, select 15 scenarios, 20, 50 scenarios, five. That's, those are your boundaries and do a really good work. Take each scenario and really understand how much you know and how much you don't know about those scenarios see where the sensitivities are and explore the hell out of them, each mm -hmm. one of them. That will give you a basis for design and that will give you those boundaries. If that's what you can do, go ahead. David has something to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited. <laughs> I've been right, sitting here waving at the camera for a while. No, I just wanted to say that one of the issues though, and so the way that you described that white check was really good. You talked about an engineer crafting a building. It is an inherently creative process. There's a great deal mm. of creativity. It's an explorative design process. It certainly should not be a process of taking a building which already exists and demonstrating compliance of that building. It's a creative process. You're right. The craft is a very, very good word for it. We get back to the discussion about demonstrating performance of a building as opposed to demonstrating compliance. Demonstrating performance is what we're trying to make a case for here as opposed to demonstrating compliance again. And the problem with, if you try and demonstrate compliance or even demonstrate performance actually, by taking a pre-selected or predefined set of 15 scenarios, 
right? That predefined set of 15 scenarios, who's, who's come up with those? Where have they come from? They've come from the experience of the profession. They've come the, from the experience of regulators as to what are the scenarios which have led to potentially unacceptable losses or unforeseen losses in the past. So if you look back probably before the mid to the early 2000s, vertical fire spread through external cladding systems wasn't a foreseeable scenario. By effectively excluding the use of combustible cladding, we had eliminated that as a possible scenario. So we never needed to consider the effects of vertical fire spread on the evacuation strategy of a building. All right? That wasn't a scenario we need to account for. Now, because that's front and center of our minds at the moment, that's a scenario that we consider. Where's the next scenario that we haven't yet seen that leads to unacceptable performance in our building? What is that scenario? And how can we be sure that just by considering these 15 scenarios, we're actually addressing the effects with the potential impacts of that 16th scenario, that next unforeseen scenario? This goes back again to the idea of demonstrating or calculating or determining the inherent risk in a building understanding what is the worst possible performance that we can have in this building. I'm very excited about hearing you say this because <clears throat> taking the experience from uh, chemical process safety, we have a list and we have some books and even legislation that tells us these are the type of scenarios that you will expect, say, in a gas processing facility. But you don't have a predefined list of scenarios. You have to go through that very painful creative process. It's a brainstorming process. And they're actually defined as brainstorming exercises of putting together all the design engineers, electronical, electrical, control and instrumentation, chemical, mechanical, and you brainstorm the scenarios. And you know, as a facilitator of these exercises, you know which type of scenarios you're targeting, but you don't know the exact scenario. And that creative process is the first step in coming up with a plant, basically. And with the safety features that plant will have, it's a very creative process. And you cannot really jump it or skip it by saying, well, this is a gas processing facility. Here are your scenarios. Mm -hmm. Because each facility will be unique. And there have been even studies where they have compared the same exact plant in two different countries, and the risk is not the same. That's interesting because I, I was just thinking about how we design bridges and you have this set of, at least in Poland, you have a set of standardized bridge designs that you can just pretty much use, adapt it slightly to your needs. But it, it generally is, it comes pre-designed and you know what this bridge will hold, what are the performance parameters of that. And you should just build that bridge if you need to cross a highway. And if you need to build a landmark in the middle of your town, you, you go and fully design that from scratch. And uh, the same in here, like in, in fire, we will not be able to use these complex methodologies for all buildings. And I don't think we should be because there are many buildings that we could call common. You've investigated some residential scenarios in your PhD, but I'm sure you could come up with some common designs for small to medium residential buildings for which you could actually do this super complex methodology, go this iterative process build your library, have the library pre-reviewed, pre and then share this as the worked out example for a common case. And then like, it could be a starting point for an analysis of a different person that, okay, this is a common case. Let's check out if the scenarios here are the same that I would expect in my, what are the scenarios that I don't expect uh, to happen? What are the scenarios that, that are outside of this analysis? And then 
build on that, and that would be quite an efficient uh, way to design a common building. I was just going to say, I mean, but you still have in in what you're describing there, you still have that creative process, you still have that brain, yeah, brainstorming yeah. process. There's still a need to in what you're describing. It's not that you can take it from the shelf and just print right. print out the building, yeah. You, yeah. you but it, it, you would need a, a starting point, you know. Yeah, it's it's the challenging components of the process are what matter. The mm. mechanistic parts of the process are not important. Arriving to a number, getting the nice FN curve, all of that mm. is not important. The important part, as David highlighted, is the understanding. And if we don't understand the inherent risk, which is at the basis, and I, I didn't clarify that, but that's the starting point of building a chemical plant as well, understanding the inherent risk. And then you create layers of protection around that inherent risk. So if you don't understand the inherent risk, you cannot pretend that an FN curve is going to provide you with enough evidence to say that a building is going to be quote unquote safe. It's just giving you a number that doesn't mean anything else. And you need to start digging into the scenarios, into the assumptions, into the models that you selected, the way that you run that, those models. And that can become basically a forensic process if you're a peer reviewer. And if you don't have a very structured way of presenting this study, which is uh, one of the things that we strive for when we came up with maximum allowable damage, this has to be something that can be packaged and can be systematically investigated by a peer reviewer without having that person say, what the hell did they try to do here? Or how did they come up with this? Or no, it has to be very well structured and say, here are my scenarios. Here are the sensitivities. Here are the blind spots. This is what we've calculated. And this is the end result. These are our design boundaries. This is what our conclusions. So it has... That's one of the other problems that the experience in chemical process safety has shown, that when you have one of these very complex risk assessments, if you don't specify a good structure for them to be carried out, when you have a peer review, usually from a government body or from the state body, if you don't have it well structured to begin with, they cannot do anything with it. They just have to make a choice of whether they want to believe in it or not. And that's not a good way of figuring out if, if a system is going to perform well. You really need that peer reviewer to be able to understand the whole workflow and to also be part of that journey of understanding the risk, not just saying yes. And for, for the final thing, I, I'm not sure if I missed it or, or maybe it's, it's not in the method, but how does the method interlock with like other branches of engineering? Because you don't want to design fire safety engineering in a silo. You don't want to be in your bubble where you would do all of this and then comes the structural engineer and uh, changes the, the outline of the floors. Or, or worse, there comes some other engineer who turns your facade into a combustible hell without you knowing. So where, where does this interlock with, with the rest of the building engineering? I'll have a go at that first. Again, a very good question, Wojciech. And it actually speaks to a concept which is gaining a lot of traction here in Australia, which I think is quite common for a number of high-profile projects and probably in a number of different jurisdictions as well. This idea of holistic design where the fire safety engineer is involved from concept design all the way through to completion and handover of a building, interacting and interfacing with all of the other engineering disciplines. I think one thing that's important to recognize with fire safety engineering is that 
we're in a very peculiar place, potentially is the right word for it, in comparison with some of the other engineering disciplines, isn't it? We're able to impose additional requirements on, for example, the structural engineer, on the facade engineer, on the mechanical engineer, on the HVAC engineer, whereas not all of those other engineering disciplines have quite such uh, potential to influence all of the other members of the design team. But the role of the fire safety engineer in the design team uh, can actually be quite central, bearing in mind that it can be quite central. The argument for fire safety engineers to be involved from concept design through to completion is very, very clear and having input in all other aspects of the design is um, quite clear as well. The benefits of them having input at all stages is quite clear, I think. And as the design evolves, you can come back to this inherent risk and just compare with that and see if you worsened or improved things. I may want to add something to, to this uh, interlock. One thing that we didn't touch on is the probabilistic part. And we did get a lot of <laughs> fire thrown at us because of being perceived as advocates of only deterministic analysis. And that is not the case. And actually, one of the final case study of the thesis was a more of a property protection kind of uh, case study. And uh, it was a structural. So that was quite a challenge for me. And I, I was really thankful that I had David guiding mm -hmm. me through it. Although it was a very simple case study, but because it was structural, we could actually play with stochastic inputs. So it was maximal allowable damage. We were trying to figure out the inherent risk in, in that design, but we were able not to just get one single answer, which in this case was property loss. Uh, so it was just not one number, but we could actually get a distribution of loss and that distribution came from those stochastic inputs, which had to do with the mechanical properties of the roof beams and so on. So I wanted just to add that, just to make clear that all of this is compatible with that stochastic information where available. But we don't go into this realm of coming up with how likely is a fire here instead of here. Because as I said at the beginning, and I guess we go full circle, we don't know. Mm. It's a good closing point <laughs> that uh, there are still challenges. Uh, well, uh, Jaime, David, thank you for introducing us to the maximum level damage risk assessment method and work you were doing at UQ. I'm going definitely to refer the, the listeners to your PhD thesis, which is very rich in, in examples and everything. Yeah, thank you for coming here and, and sharing this interesting insight. And we've agreed to that before I had the interview with Brian. Brian mentioned that such a method would be very needed. So I'm more than happy to <laughs> present it at the podcast. Well, great minds think alike. Guys, uh, thank you so much for being here. And Thanks, Wojciech. Yeah. It was a pleasure. That's, yeah, thank uh, you, Wojciech. We'll need to catch up uh, at some point to see how it uh, went out. If it caught traction... And where did you develop it further? Because I don't think that's the, that's the end of it. <laughs> I, I hope it's a beginning of a whole new chapter in, in fire safety engineering. Yeah, Thanks, guys. I hope so. Hopefully. Thanks for a check. And that's it. I hope you liked it. As I've mentioned in the brief introduction to the talk, to change a scientific discipline, you have to enter it from outside of it. It's not possible to change a scientific discipline from inside. And that's what Jaime is trying to do. He's been a process engineer, chemical engineer, learned his craft in that discipline, and then jumped into the fire to see how this knowledge can be applied. And as you see, it leads to some very, very interesting concepts. 
in fire safety engineering, we so often focus on the threshold values, the goals, you know, the numbers written in our codes towards which we pursue and we push the craft. While sometimes we forget what the craft is about, we sometimes don't think about the changes we do to the building, we just go with them blindly just to meet another deadline, another threshold, another goal. To seek this methodology that is absolutely focused on the process itself, learning the building, discovering, going through iterations to find the optimal safety in the building. That, that's truly fascinating. And I think it could lead to a very, very safe design. Obviously, there's challenges, and I'm more than aware of that. It's going to be time-consuming. It's not going to be applicable to every building. However, I think it could also lead to creation of a catalog of standardized buildings with this very well-done risk analysis that could be a starting point for further analysis. If that would be the case, the thing would not be as time-consuming and would lead to very high-quality risk analysis for the buildings. So maybe we should try that. That's that. I think that's a quite a good concept. And maybe if I find a keen uh, student, I'll push them towards such an analysis. Let me know what you think in the comments or on Twitter. I'm, I'm very keen to hear what are your opinions about where could we go with risk analysis and fire, or maybe where should it go. So that's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And as usual, I'll be waiting for you with the next one on next Wednesday. And again, I have a great guest. It's going to be UQ, University of Queensland again. So, But I'm not going to tell you who. That's, that's, a, that's the mystery. I'm sure you're going to love it. And uh, yeah, see you next Wednesday. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.